Section 45 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 20. Part 2. 10. But here a difficult, and as it seems a perplexing, question arises. If all Christians are forbidden to kill, and the prophet predicts, concerning the holy mountain of the Lord, that is the church, quote, they shall not hurt or destroy, unquote, how can magistrates be at once pious and yet shedders of blood? But if we understand that the magistrate, in inflicting punishment, acts not of himself, but executes the very judgments of God, we shall be disencumbered of every doubt. The law of the Lord forbids to kill, but that murder may not go unpunished, the lawgiver himself puts the sword into the hands of his ministers, that they may employ it against all murderers. It belongs not to the pious to afflict and hurt, but to avenge the afflictions of the pious at the command of God is neither to afflict nor hurt. I wish it could always be present to our mind that nothing is done here by the rashness of man, but all in obedience to the authority of God. When it is the guide, we never stray from the right path, unless indeed divine justice is to be placed under restraint and not allowed to take punishment on crimes. But if we dare not give the law to it, why should we bring a charge against its ministers? Quote, he beareth not the sword in vain, unquote, says Paul, Quote, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath on him that doeth evil, unquote. Romans 13.4 Wherefore, if princes and other rulers know that nothing will be more acceptable to God than their obedience, let them give themselves to this service, if they are desirous to improve their piety, justice, and integrity to God. This was the feeling of Moses, when recognizing himself as destined to deliver his people by the power of the Lord, he laid violent hands on the Egyptian and afterwards took vengeance on the people for sacrilege by slaying three thousand of them in one day. This was the feeling of David also, when, towards the end of his life, he ordered his son Solomon to put Joab and Shimei to death. Hence also, in an enumeration of the virtues of a king, one is to cut off the wicked from the earth and banish all workers of iniquity from the city of God. To the same effect is the praise which is bestowed on Solomon, quote, Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness, unquote. How is it that the meek and gentle temper of Moses becomes so exasperated that, besmeared and reeking with the blood of his brethren, he runs through the camp, making new slaughter? How is it that David, who during his whole life showed so much mildness, almost at his last breath, leaves with his son the bloody testament 
not to allow the grey hairs of Joab and Shimei to go to the grave in peace. Both, by their sternness, sanctified the hands which they would have polluted by showing mercy, inasmuch as they executed the vengeance committed to them by God. Solomon says, quote, It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. Unquote. Again, quote, A king that sitteth in the throne of judgment scattereth away all evil with his eyes. Unquote. Again, quote, A wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them. Unquote. Again, Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer. Take away the wicked man from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Unquote. Again, he that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. Unquote. Again, quote, an evil man seeketh only rebellion, therefore an evil messenger shall be sent against him. Unquote. Again, quote, He that saith unto the wicked, Thou art righteous, him shall the people curse, nations shall abhor him. Unquote. Now, if it is true justice in them to pursue the guilty and impious with drawn sword, to sheath the sword, and keep their hands pure from blood, while nefarious men wade through murder and slaughter, so far from redounding to the praise of their goodness and justice, would be to incur the guilt of the greatest impiety, provided always they eschew reckless and cruel asperity, and that tribunal which may be justly termed a rock on which the accused must founder. For I am not one of those who would either favour an unseasonable severity, or think that any tribunal could be accounted just that is not presided over by mercy, that best and surest counsellor of kings, and as Solomon declares, upholder of the throne. Unquote. Proverbs 20.28 20, This, as was truly said by one of old, should be the primary endowment of princes. The magistrate must guard against both extremes. He must neither, by excessive severity, rather wound than cure, nor by a superstitious affectation of clemency fall into the most cruel inhumanity by giving way to soft and dissolute indulgence to the destruction of many. It was well said by one under the empire of Nerva, it is indeed a bad thing to live under a prince with whom nothing is lawful, but a much worse to live under one with whom all things are lawful. 11. As it is sometimes necessary for kings and states to take up arms in order to execute public vengeance, the reason assigned furnishes us with the means of estimating how far the wars which are thus undertaken are lawful. For if power has been given them to maintain the tranquillity of their subjects, repress the seditious movements of the turbulent, assist those who are violently oppressed and adamadvert on crimes, can they use it more opportunely than in repressing the fury of him who disturbs both the ease of individuals 
and the common tranquillity of all, who excites seditious tumult, and perpetrates acts of violent oppression and gross wrongs. If it becomes them to be the guardians and maintainers of the laws, they must repress the attempts of all alike, by whose criminal conduct the discipline of the laws is impaired. Nay, if they justly punish those robbers, whose injuries have been afflicted only on a few, will they allow the whole country to be robbed and devastated with impunity? Since it makes no difference whether it is by king or by the lowest of the people that a hostile and devastating inroad is made into a district over which they have no authority, all alike are to be regarded and punished as robbers. Natural equity and duty, therefore, demand that princes be armed, not only to repress private crimes by judicial inflictions, but to defend the subjects committed to their guardianship whenever they are hostilely assailed. Such even the Holy Spirit, in many passages of Scripture, declares to be lawful. 12. But if it is objected that in the New Testament there is no passage or example teaching that war is lawful for Christians, I answer first that the reason for carrying on war, which anciently existed, still exists in the present day, and that on the other hand there is no ground for debarring magistrates from the defence of those under them. And secondly, that in the apostolic writings we are not to look for a distinct exposition of those matters, their object being not to form a civil polity, but to establish the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Lastly, that there also it is indicated, in passing, that our Saviour by his advent made no change in this respect. For, to use the words of Augustine, quote, if Christian discipline condemned all wars, when the soldiers asked counsel as to the way of salvation, they would have been told to cast away their arms and withdraw altogether from military service. Whereas it was said, Luke 3.14, Concuss no one, do injury to no one, be contented with your pay. Those whom he orders to be contented with their pay, he certainly does not forbid to serve. Unquote. But all magistrates must here be particularly cautious not to give way in the slightest degree to their passions, or rather, where the punishments are to be inflicted, they must not be borne headlong by anger, nor hurried away by hatred, nor burn with implacable severity. They must, as Augustine says, quote, even pity a common nature in him, in whom they punish an individual fault, unquote. or whether they have to take up arms against an enemy, that is, an armed robber, they must not readily catch at the opportunity. Nay, they must not take it when offered, unless compelled by the strongest necessity. For if we are to do far more than that the heathen demanded, who wished war to appear as desired peace, assuredly, all other means must be tried before having recourse to arms. In fine, in both cases, they must not allow themselves to be carried away by any private feeling, but be guided solely by regard for the public. 
acting otherwise, they wickedly abused their power, which was given them not for their own advantage, but for the good and service of others. On this right of war depends the right of garrisons, leagues, and other civil munitions. By garrisons I mean those which are stationed in states for defence of the frontiers. By leagues, the alliances which are made by neighbouring princes, on the ground that if any disturbance arise within their territories, they will mutually assist each other and combine their forces to repel the common enemies of the human race. Under civil munitions, I include everything pertaining to the military art. 13. Lastly, we think it proper to add that taxes and imposts are the legitimate revenues of princes, which they are chiefly to employ in sustaining the public burdens of their office. These, however, they may use for the maintenance of their domestic state, which is, in a manner, combined with the dignity of the authority which they exercise. Thus we see that David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, and other holy kings, Joseph also, and Daniel, in proportion to the office which they sustained, without offending piety, expended liberally of the public funds. And we read in Ezekiel that a very large extent of territory was assigned to kings. Ezekiel 48.21 In that passage, indeed, he is depicting the spiritual kingdom of Christ, but still he borrows his representation from lawful dominion among men. Princes, however, must remember, in their turn, that their revenues are not so much private chests as treasuries of the whole people. This Paul testifies, Romans 13.6, which they cannot, without manifest injustice, squander or dilapidate, or rather that they are almost the blood of the people, which it were the harshest inhumanity not to spare. They should also consider that their levies and contributions and other kinds of taxes are merely subsidies of the public necessity, and that it is tyrannical rapacity to harass the poor people with them without cause. These things do not stimulate princes to profusion and luxurious expenditure. There is certainly no need to inflame the passions when they are already of their own accord inflamed more than enough. But seeing it is of the greatest consequence that, whatever they venture to do, they should do with a pure conscience, it is necessary to teach them how far they may lawfully go, lest by impious confidence they incur the divine displeasure. Nor is this doctrine superfluous to private individuals, that they may not rashly and petulantly stigmatize the expenditure of princes, though it should exceed the ordinary limits. 14. In states, the thing next in importance to the magistrates is laws, the strongest sinews of government, or, as Cicero calls them after Plato, the soul without which the office of the magistrate cannot exist. Just as, on the other hand, laws have no vigour without the magistrate. Hence nothing could be said more truly than that the law is a dumb magistrate, the magistrate a living law. As I have undertaken to describe the laws, 
by which Christian polity is to be governed, there is no reason to expect from me a long discussion on the best kind of laws. The subject is of vast extent, and belongs not to this place. I will only briefly observe, in passing, what the laws are which may be piously used with reference to God, and duly administered among men. This I would rather have passed in silence, were I not aware that many dangerous errors are here committed. For there are some who deny that any commonwealth is rightly framed, which neglects the law of Moses, and is ruled by common law of nations. How perilous and seditious these views are, let others see. For me it is enough to demonstrate that they are stupid and false. We must attend to the well-known division which distributes the whole law of God, as promulgated by Moses, into the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law. And we must attend to each of these parts in order to understand how far they do or do not pertain to us. Meanwhile, let no one be moved by the thought that the judicial and ceremonial laws relate to morals. For the ancients who adopted this division, though they were not unaware that the two latter classes had to do with morals, did not give them the name of moral, because they might be changed and abrogated without affecting morals. They give this name especially to the first class, without which true holiness of life and an immutable rule of conduct cannot exist. 15. The moral law, then, to begin with it, being contained under two heads, the one of which simply enjoins us to worship God with pure faith and piety, the other to embrace men with sincere affection, is the true and eternal rule of righteousness prescribed to the men of all nations and of all times who would frame their life agreeably to the will of God. For his eternal and immutable will is that we are all to worship him and mutually love one another. The ceremonial law of the Jews was a tutelage by which the Lord was pleased to exercise, as it were, the childhood of that people until the fullness of the time should come when he was fully to manifest his wisdom to the world and exhibit the reality of those things which were then adumbrated by figures. Galatians 3.24, 4.4 The judicial law, given them as a kind of polity, delivered certain forms of equity and justice by which they might live together innocently and quietly. And as that exercise in ceremonies properly pertained to the doctrine of piety, inasmuch as it kept the Jewish church in the worship and religion of God, yet was still distinguishable from piety itself. So the judicial form, though it looked only to the best method of preserving that charity which is enjoined by the eternal law of God, was still something distinct from the precept of love itself. Therefore, as ceremonies might be abrogated without at all interfering with piety, so also, when these judicial arrangements are removed, the duties and precepts of charity can still remain perpetual. But if it is true that each nation has been left at liberty to enact the laws which it judges to be beneficial, still these are always to be tested by the rule of charity, so that while they vary in form, 
they must proceed on the same principle. Those barbarous and savage laws, for instance, which conferred honour on thieves, allowed the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, and other things even fouler and more absurd, I do not think entitled to be considered as laws, since they are not only altogether abhorrent to justice, but to humanity and civilised life. 16. What I have said will become plain if we attend, as we ought, to two things connected with all laws, namely the enactment of the law and the equity on which the enactment is founded and rests. Equity, as it is natural, cannot be the same in all, and therefore ought to be proposed by all laws according to the nature of the thing enacted. As constitutions have some circumstances on which they partly depend, there is nothing to prevent their diversity, provided they, all alike, aim at equity as their end. Now as it is evident that the law of God which we call moral is nothing else than the testimony of natural law and of that conscience which God has engraven on the minds of men, the whole of this equity on which we now speak is prescribed in it. Hence it alone ought to be the aim, the rule, and the end of all laws. Wherever laws are formed after this rule, directed to this aim, and restricted to this end, there is no reason why they should be disapproved by us, however much they may differ from the Jewish law, or from each other. The law of God forbids to steal. The punishment appointed for theft in the civil polity of the Jews may be seen in Exodus 22. Very ancient laws of other nations punished theft by exacting the double of what was stolen, while subsequent laws made a distinction between theft manifest and not manifest. Other laws went the length of punishing with exile or with branding, while others made the punishment capital. Among the Jews, the punishment of the false witness was to, quote, do unto him as he had thought to have done with his brother, unquote, Deuteronomy 19.19. In some countries the punishment is infamy, in others hanging, in others crucifixion. All laws alike avenge murder with blood, but the kinds of death are different. In some countries adultery was punished more severely, in others more leniently. Yet we see that amidst this diversity they all tend to the same end, for they all with one mouth declare against those crimes which are condemned by the eternal law of God, namely murder, theft, adultery, and false witness, though they agree not as to the mode of punishment. This is not necessary, nor even expedient. There may be a country which, if murder were not visited with fearful punishments, would instantly become a prey to robbery and slaughter. There may be an age requiring that the severity of punishments should be increased. If the state is in troubled condition, those things from which disturbances usually arise must be corrected by new edicts. In time of war, civilization would disappear amid the noise of arms were not men 
overawed by the unwanted severity of punishment. In sterility, in pestilence, were not stricter discipline employed, all things would grow worse. One nation might be prone to a particular vice, were it not most severely repressed. How malignant were it, and invidious of the public good, to be offended at this diversity, which is admirably adapted to retain the observance of the divine law. The allegation that insult is offered to the law of God, enacted by Moses, where it is abrogated, and other new laws are preferred to it, is most absurd. Others are not preferred when they are more approved, not absolutely, but from regard to time and place and the condition of the people, or when those things are abrogated which were never enacted for us. The law did not deliver it by the hand of Moses to be promulgated in all countries, and to be everywhere enforced. But having taken the Jewish nation under his special care, patronage, and guardianship, he was pleased to be specially its legislator, and as became a wise legislator, he had special regard to it in enacting laws. 17. It now remains to see, as was proposed in the last place, what use the common society of Christians derive from laws, judicial proceedings, and magistrates. With this is connected another question, namely, what difference ought private individuals to pay to magistrates, and how far ought obedience to proceed? To very many it seems that among Christians the office of magistrate is superfluous because they cannot piously implore his aid, inasmuch as they are forbidden to take revenge, cite before a judge, or go to law. But when Paul, on the contrary, clearly declares that he is the minister of God to us for good, Romans 13.4, we thereby understand that he was so ordained of God that, being defended by his hand and aid, against the dishonesty and injustice of wicked men, we may live quiet and secure. But if he would have been appointed over us in vain, unless we were to use his aid, it is plain that it cannot be wrong to appeal to it and implore it. Here indeed I have to do with two classes of men, for there are very many who boil with such a rage for litigation that they never can be quiet with themselves unless they are fighting with others. Lawsuits they prosecute with the bitterness of deadly hatred, and with an insane eagerness to hurt and revenge, and they persist in them with implacable obstinacy, even to the ruin of their adversary. Meanwhile, that they may be thought to do nothing but what is legal, they use this pretext of judicial proceedings as a defence of their perverse conduct. But if it is lawful for brother to litigate with brother, it does not follow that it is lawful to hate him and obstinately pursue him with a furious desire to do him harm. 18. Let such persons then understand that judicial proceedings are lawful to him who makes a right use of them. And the right use, both for the pursuer and the defender, is for the latter to assist himself on the day appointed, and without bitterness, urge what he can in his defence, 
but only with the desire of justly maintaining his right. And for the pursuer, when undeservedly attacked in this life or fortunes, to throw himself upon the protection of the magistrate, state his complaint, and demand what is just and good. While far from any wish to hurt or take vengeance, far from bitterness or hatred, far from the ardour of strife, he is rather disposed to yield and suffer somewhat than to cherish hostile feelings towards his opponent. On the contrary, when minds are filled with malevolence, corrupted by envy, burning with anger, breathing revenge, or in fine so inflamed by the heat of the contest that they in some measure lay aside charity, the whole pleading, even of the justest cause, cannot be but impious. For it ought to be an axiom among all Christians that no plea, however equitable, can be rightly conducted by any one who does not feel as kindly towards his opponent as if the matter in dispute were amicably transacted and arranged. Someone, perhaps, may here break in and say that such moderation in judicial proceedings is so far from being seen that an instance of it would be a kind of prodigy. I confess that in these times it is rare to meet with an example of an honest litigant. But the thing itself, untainted by accession of evil, ceases not to be good and pure. When we hear that the assistance of the magistrate is a sacred gift from God, we ought the more carefully to beware of polluting it by our fault. 19. Let those who distinctly condemn all judicial distinction know that they repudiate the holy ordinance of God, and one of those gifts which to the pure are pure, unless, indeed, they would charge Paul with a crime because he repelled the calumnies of his accusers, exposing their craft and wickedness, and at the tribunal claimed for himself the privilege of a Roman citizen, appealing when necessary from the governor to Caesar's judgment seat. There is nothing contrary to this in the prohibition which binds all Christians to refrain from revenge, a feeling which we drive far away from all Christian tribunals. For whether the action be of a civil nature, he only takes the right course who with innocuous simplicity commits his course to the judge as the public protector without any thought of returning evil for evil, which is the feeling of revenge, or whether the action is of a graver nature, directed against a capital offence. The accuser required is not one who comes into court carried away by some feeling of revenge or resentment from some private injury, but one whose only object is to prevent the attempts of some bad men to injure the commonweal. But if you take away the vindictive mind, you offend no respect against the command which forbids Christians to indulge revenge. But they are not only forbidden to thirst for revenge, they are also enjoined to wait for the hand of the Lord, who promises that he will be the avenger of the oppressed and afflicted. But those who call upon the magistrate to give assistance to themselves or others anticipate the vengeance of the heavenly judge. By no means, for we are to consider that the vengeance of the magistrate is the vengeance not of man but of God.
which, as Paul says, he exercises by the ministry of man for our good. Romans 13.8 20. No more are we at variance with the words of Christ, who forbids us to resist evil, and adds, quote, Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Unquote. Matthew 5.39.40 He would have the minds of his followers to be so abhorrent to everything like retaliation, that they would sooner allow the injury to be doubled than desire to repay it. From this patience we do not dissuade them, for verily Christians were to be a class of men born to endure affronts and injuries, and be exposed to the iniquity, imposture, and derision of abandoned men, and not only so, but were to be tolerant of all these evils, that is, so composed in the whole frame of their minds, that on receiving one offence they were to prepare themselves for another, promising themselves nothing during the whole of life, but the endurance of a perpetual cross. Meanwhile they must do good to those who injure them, and pray for those who curse them, and this is their only victory. Strive to overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 20, 21. Thus affected, they will not seek eye for eye and tooth for tooth, as the Pharisees taught their disciples to long for vengeance, but as we are instructed by Christ, they will allow their body to be mutilated and their goods to be maliciously taken from them, prepared to remit and spontaneously pardon those injuries the moment they have been inflicted. This equity and moderation, however, will not prevent them, with entire friendship for their enemies, from using the aid of the magistrate for the preservation of their goods, or from zeal for the public interest to call for the punishment of the wicked and pestilential man, whom they know nothing will reform but death. All these precepts are truly expounded by Augustine as tending to prepare the just and pious man patiently to sustain the malice of those whom he desires to become good, that he may thus increase the number of the good, not add himself to the number of the bad, by imitating their wickedness. Moreover, it pertains more to the preparation of the heart which is within than to the work which is done openly, that patience and goodwill may be retained within the secret of the heart, and that may be done openly, which we see may do good to those to whom we ought to wish well. End of section 45